Wes, um, pull up that slide first, the picture, the one underneath. We're beginning a, a new series this uh, week through the month of October uh, called Semper Reformanda, which is a Latin phrase for always reforming. Uh, in 1517, of October, on October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther took 95 theses, 95 thoughts um, of reformation that needed to happen from the Catholic Church, and he nailed them to the castle, do- castle door, or the door of the Castle Church at Witten- Wittenberg, and basically started what we now know as the Protestant Reformation, which is why we are even able to sit in this room uh, as Protestants and not Catholic. And so we're going to look at this um, in in five parts, the five doctrines that they focused on, which you'll hear more about in a second. But we wanted to show you a video first of how we are born out of protest. 500 years ago, we were born out of a protest. We saw a... Martin Luther and the other reformers saw... They saw corruption and they saw a drifting away from the doctrines of the faith. And they didn't seek to leave the Catholic Church. In fact, they just wanted to reform the Catholic Church. But when they found out and realized that reforming was not going to be possible they removed themselves from the catholic church and started different protestant um denominations and so as you saw in that video we were born out of a protest we were born out of a desire to see our faith returned to the faith of the bible and so for the month of october we are going to focus on five key doctrines of the Reformation. And you may say, why are we talking about doctrines that are 500 years old? Well, they're older than 500 years. They go all the way back to the Bible. But we focus on them because they matter today. Because if we lose sight of what the Bible has to say in terms of grace, faith, Christ, the Scripture, and the glory of God, then we have lost and misplaced Christianity. And so these do matter, and we want you to learn a phrase. The reformers, they they saw a lot going on that they didn't like. The selling of indulgences, which was basically you give the church money and you can buy your, your ancestors or you can buy people out of hell, which is not at all biblical. They saw all these things happening they didn't agree with, but they decided to rally around and really fix and hone in on something that the Catholic Church misteaches, which is salvation. And so what we want, the phrase we want you to hear by the end of October, you should know it, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And we are going to take each one of these phrases, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the glory of God alone, and we are going to preach through them so that we hopefully by the end of the month will have a biblical, a more solid, deeply rooted biblical understanding of what does the grace of God mean to the believer? What does faith mean? What did Christ do on the cross? What does scripture teach us about how it is the only authority and how is everything under the umbrella of the glory of God? So that's what we seek 
to do. And so today we are starting with grace. The Latin phrase in their, what they would have said, it's called the five solas of the Reformation. S-O-L-A-S. Sola is the Latin word for alone. Solo. One. Most of our language comes from Latin and Greek. And so when we see things like that, we can see how they uh, fit into our language. So the Five doctrines together are called the five solas of the Reformation. The first one that we're going to be talking about today is sola gratia, by grace alone. This is the Latin phrase, so you can go English or Latin. I don't care which one you want to do today. Grace alone or sola gratia, okay? S-O-L-A-G-R-A-T-I-A, sola gratia, by grace alone. If you have your Bibles, we ask and I ask that you open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. This is where we want to go. It is one of the premier texts on the grace of God. As you find Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I want to, while you're looking for chapter 2, I'm going to show you what he did leading up to chapter 2 to set this up. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, he tells us that we are blessed by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In 6 and 7 and 8, he told us that we have been blessed by the glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He lavished them on us, and that all wisdom and insight, that we might obtain an inheritance with the saints in glory, and then he opens up his prayer for the, uh, Ephes- the church of Ephesus, which says that we want all spirit of wisdom and the revelation of the knowledge, having your eyes enlightened, the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know that hope to which you have been called. And he sets all of that up before he goes into and delivers a devastating punch. So if you have it, will you stand as we honor the reading of God's word from the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. For we are, or sorry, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of God for the people of God. We want you to understand that as Baptists, as Protestants, we believe that God is 
the author of, the finisher of, the sustainer in salvation. It is not of our works. And Paul is going to show us as he speaks to the church at Ephesus. He's going to show us the importance of understanding grace. So what do we know about the church at Ephesus? Well, the church at Ephesus was a rock star. Okay? If you go to Revelation chapter 2, let me tell you a little bit about the church at Ephesus. Inside of the, um, the chapters in the Acts on the church of Ephesus, what we understand is that the gospel came to Ephesus, and it came to Ephesus in such a way that idol makers stopped making money. Because of how hard the gospel hit the city. That people were so radically changed that they could no longer make money off of sin. I wish and pray that the gospel would impact our area in such a way that we could no longer make money off of sin. It'd be like Vegas having to shut down because the gospel hit it so hard that it is no longer the den of iniquity that it is. But it hit it so hard. Among the staff at Ephesus were authors of the Bible. Okay? John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who he was told to take care of my mama on the cross, that man was one of the pastors at Ephesus. Now, I think me and Billy are doing an okay job, but we ain't John. Okay? Billy, you there? I'm not there. Y'all can just, I'm sorry. They had John on their church staff, and they had Timothy, Paul's protege, on their church staff. They were booming in Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, he has all these wonderful things to say about Ephesus. How they test people to make sure that they are teaching right doctrine. How they are solid and strong in the faith. They bear with one another in love and they endure patiently. Now, he also gave one of the biggest indictments of the church at Ephesus when he said, The only thing I have against you is you lost the love that you had at first. They got so wrapped up in everything that they got rid of Jesus. They lost their point and their focus. And we are in danger in the church of America of doing the same thing. We are abandoning Jesus for everything else. And this message, these series of messages, is a call to a reformation. That we have to no longer tread the path we are currently walking, but instead return to the Bible. So what does Paul tell us in Ephesus when he writes to the church in Ephesus? Paul does what Paul does, which is in the first half of his books, he tells us the gospel. What God has done for us in Jesus before he ever tells us what to do. Because he knows that our hearts are fickle, that Jeremiah says our hearts are deceitful, above all else, that John says that our hearts are a factory of idols, that if given the opportunity and left to our own devices, our hearts will always turn everything away from God. And so he reminds them, before he ever asks them to do anything, he reminds them what God already did. 
before you and I can ever understand grace, we must first start where the Bible starts, which is we have to understand how truly depraved we are. You cannot fully accept and acknowledge and believe and rejoice in the grace that God has given you if you do not remember how, from how far you have fallen. And so he starts reminding us as we walk through this passage, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he uses two words for the same thing. Why would he use two words? Well, he wanted to give us two different analogies. The word there for sin is in fact missing the mark. It would be like an archer aiming at a target and not hitting the bullseye. So he says that we are dead in the trespasses and sins. We do not hit the mark, but trespassing is what? It's stepping over the boundary. So not only have we come up short, we've also shot too long. We have hit and missed the mark on all sides. And what we are preaching here today is a hard message because the Church of America does not want to teach this doctrine of total and utter depravity because it makes us feel bad. But here's the problem with that. The Bible. The Bible does not say that you need an attitude adjustment. The Bible does not say that you need a pick-me-up. The Bible does not say just grab yourself by your bootstraps and do better. The Bible says you are completely and utterly incapable of saving yourself. There is nothing that you bring to the table except death. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and dead people do not do anything. You cannot just try harder to be saved. You cannot just try to do the right things and earn your salvation. You and I were dead in our sin. We followed the course of the world and we were dead in three ways. We not only were dead in one way, we were dead in three ways. We didn't just follow our own flesh. Right? Let's read what it says. Following the course of this world, following the... Once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature. Here's the point we not only carried out our own sinful desires, which we all understand and agree with, we also followed the course of the world. We came alongside with our flesh and followed the devil. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Don't worry, we're getting to verse 4 now. i got to set it up like Paul does, because when verse 4 hits, it hits hard. But it only hits hard if you realize that you and I are utterly disgusting. There, is no good, there are no good people in this world. You're like, well, that's not true. I, it is true. Even our good deeds, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. Our righteousness is filthy. So I'm telling you, when somebody tries to trip us up and ask us the question, what about the good man that dies in Africa or South America, South America or Asia and hasn't heard the gospel? Well, that's a wrong question because there are no good people there. So if that good person ever died without hearing the gospel, then they'd go to heaven. You know why? Because they were good. The problem is there's no good people. So your, your statement and your question are false from the beginning. 
Romans 1 tells us in verse 18 that the wrath of God is coming against all unrighteousness at man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then it goes on to tell us that what we know is evident about God, even from his eternal power and his nature, so that we are without excuse. What the world needs is not an attitude adjustment. It does not need a pick-me-up. It does not need more morally good people. What the world needs is to be brought from death unto life. And the only thing that can do that is Jesus. So it paints a dark picture in verses 1 to 3. That we followed the world. We followed our own passions. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed Satan himself. We are by nature. What's nature? It is the very essence of who you are. It's not just a piece of you. It's not part of you. Every bit bit of you and I before Jesus is corrupt, is dead, our very nature, so that we are children of wrath. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him is not perish, but have everlasting life. That God came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We like that verse. If you keep reading in John chapter 3, though, you're going to find some other verses that aren't so great. At the end of it, in John 3.36, it says, Anybody that does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. Here's our problem, folks. It's not that we just aren't good enough. The very wrath of God himself is sitting on top of us, condemning us to hell. You have to have all that in mind before you read the first two words of verse 4. Let all of that sink in. Let every evil thing you have ever done carry the weight of its soul and then read, but God. That's the power of the gospel. There's no better phrase in the Bible right then when Paul has painted the bleakest of pictures when he says, but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? He made us alive. This is the power of the gospel. Romans chapter 9 tells us that before Jacob and Esau could do anything, God hated one and loved the other. Why? Because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He offers forgiveness to whom he offers forgiveness because he is God. It is not your business what God does with his stuff. Ephesians chapter 2 paints a terrible picture, but then it opens up to the most beautiful thing that it could ever say. But God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he saved us. For by grace you have been saved. Not only did he save us, he raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That in, let me explain what happened on the cross. Because I don't think some of us get it. I'm not talking about lost people. I know that y'all don't. But it's because we need, we need Jesus. I'm talking about some of us Christians don't really grasp and understand what happened on the cross. We think Jesus just died. Okay. That did happen, true. Did you know that when Jesus was in the garden, he was not praying for the cross to be taken away from him. He was praying that God would take away his wrath 
from him. It's not that Jesus died on the cross. It's that he was about to be the all-consuming object of the wrath of God. Every sin that you and I that are saved would ever commit was put on the head of Jesus. He's not concerned about some meagly, whatever little cross. At any point, he could have called down legions upon angels to defend him. And at any point, he could have just said, nah, I'm out. And stepped off. Like, y'all do know that about Jesus, right? Like, he did some stuff. Some, some stuff, right? He, he spit in some mud and he cured blindness, right? He just said, get up and walk to people that could not walk and they did it. Jesus is not concerned about walking off the cross. At any point, he could have stepped down, except for the fact that he was obeying the Father. And the Father saw fit to pour every drop of his wrath on his only Son for us miserable wretches. He did not get a good deal. Okay? He didn't get the best of us. He got the worst of us. Is there anything to gain from the cross? Sure there is. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? It was us, the church, God's people. Because it has always been the plan that God's people will worship God. But we messed it up. We decided that we would rather worship ourselves than worship the Creator. And so from eternity past, God would condemn His only Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sakes, not for Jesus, not for Him, for our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. It's not that He would just take away our sin. Christ actually became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you have to understand that you and I do not and did not deserve it. We even try to make our salvation about us. But the Bible tells us, no, 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 stop it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're going to talk about faith next week. And this is not of your own doing. Just a reminder, you didn't do it. It is a gift of God. Why? So that you could not boast about it. Because you better bet your bottom dollar. If we had anything to do with it, we would boast away. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by the grace of God that he freely gives to those that do not deserve it. We have to understand that no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how many times you go to Sunday school, no matter how many times you tithe, no matter how many times you do the good things, you are not good enough. There is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to earn heaven. Is that not even shown in the fact that after saved, we still act like a bunch of crazy people? If you thought you weren't good enough beforehand, even after we get saved, we still sin like there's no tomorrow. 
to just show that even after we did the thing, we're still not good enough. Because we didn't do it. God did. And if you are a believer here today, then you better rest and just praise God for the fact that He did. Because if God had chosen not to, we would have no hope. Nothing that we could do or muster in all of our ingenuity. And people are ingenuitive, ain't they? Intentive, whatever that word is. People, we're smart. Genesis chapter 11, we built a tower to the heavens. Because we wanted to. Until God said, no, no, no. And then scattered everybody. I don't know if y'all realize that um, we don't have to worry. Most of us do not have to worry about dying by the plague at age 30. Why? Because we took care of that. We cured it. We live longer. We can regrow arms like lizards. Why? Because medical technology is insane. We, we, there is more computing power in this than there was that sent a rocket to the moon. Okay? Y'all do realize that, right? The rocket that sent somebody into space was as big as a room, and I'm carrying something more powerful than around in my pocket. That right now, I could Facebook message my brother, Randy. He's not my actual brother. Brother in Jesus. Randy, y'all remember him. He's in Haiti, teaching pastors. I could boop, 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 and just hit him up in Haiti without having to call, you know, whatever. I don't even know country codes, but I'm just saying... (laughs) Right? Ours is number one because America. But I'm just... (laughs) I don't know who doled those out. I bet it was us. And so... Oh, us. See what I did there? U.S. Us. (laughs) Okay, so... There we go. The rest of y'all caught it. (laughs) We are ingenuitive we will come up with solutions right when we uh, alice and i went to the beach for a vacation this past august um the house that we were staying at wasn't big enough for our family my mom's family and my brother's family so i graciously volunteered to not sleep there (laughs) you're welcome so allison and i went to a hotel on the beach We don't like the beach because the beach is sandy and terrible. But we went there. And we don't have cable because I like money. I like to keep it and make it mine. Not just give it away. Because we're busy. Anybody anybody here busy? Anybody in here have 800 hours of DVR shows that you have not watched? Yet you're still paying the cable company $100 a month? It's fine. And so we got there. So instead we just got rid of all of that. But they had TV in the hotel. So we just were, were going across Discovery Channel. Anybody like the Discovery Channel? I like to discover things, right? Well, this show, it captivated us. It's called Naked and Afraid. Thank God for censor bars is all I'm trying to say, okay? But what happens? I don't know why they have to be naked, but I guess maybe because you could fashion something out of your leg. I don't know, your pants leg. Anyways, so they take this man and this woman that previously do not know each other and they strip them naked and give them like a fire starter and a knife and send them off into some terrible part of the world. And they have to survive for 21 days and then make it 
to a place usually seven miles away. Well, first, hard pass on that show. No, thank you. I will never be a part of that for multiple reasons. One, because I would die. They come up with these how how far you can or how how good you can survive. I, mine would be like a three. I'm no good. I'm no good. I don't like bugs. I don't like hot. I don't like cold. I don't like gross food. I'm just, just going to die in the wilderness. Anyways, and so I would be definitely be one of the Israelites complaining. We left Egypt for this. Right? I would definitely be that person. But anyways, we're watching this show, and I watch these people fashion things out of wood and straw that I'd be just sitting there dying. I was like, he just make a shelter. I stood under this tree. I don't know what you want me to do. Right? They were, they were in a place with crocodiles or alligators, some kind of terrible reptile, and he had fashioned a noose on the end of a stick to catch an alligator. With the blunt end of a sharper stick, or with the sharper stick to stab it in the head. I'm sitting there thinking, no thank you. None of that would work for me. But yet our people, as people, we are ingenuitive, right? And then right after that, they started a new show called Something in the Dark. Where they just drop people off in these dark caves for six days in complete and total darkness. No thank you. Spiders live in caves. So I touch that, have a heart attack, show's over, I'm dead. And so, but they figure out a way. We have made terrible, terrible things because we just wanted to figure out a way to hurt people, to be the best. I'm talking atom bombs and things like that. We will figure out a way. And yet for all that ingenuity, you and I cannot save ourselves. We cannot figure out a way to cross the divide to heaven. But God. He stepped into the gap for us. And he didn't have to. He did not have to. He's under no obligation to. But for his own glory, which we'll talk about. For the sake of Christ, which we will talk about through faith and for Scripture in accordance to His Word, we're going to talk about God saved you and He saved me. So what do we do with this? Turn to Romans chapter 6 real quick. We're going to end here. This is a for real end, not a preacher end. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Sometimes preachers say we're going to end here, and then 20 minutes later, they're still preaching. This is for real, the end. I think Lance just said, I'll believe it when I see it. And so, so what do we do? What do we do with the grace of God? Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he follows up his question with the answer by no means which is the strongest negation he had i don't know what our strongest negation is right but it's that by no means are you kidding me no how can we who have died to sin continue to still live in it this is what you do with this information Number one is that if you're here today and you were not saved, today is the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ and He will forgive you. 
And we would love to talk to you about that. If you're here today and you are saved. What that means. How do you live in the grace that God has given to you? I got two words. Stop it. That's it. How do you live in the grace? Stop it. How can we who have died to sin continue to do it? Well, he goes on to say in chapter 7, I don't do the things I do want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do, and if I don't do it, then it's me, and if I do do it, it's sin, and all kinds of stuff, and whatever, and you just get confused the point being that we're terrible. Can just a continued theme. But then in Romans 8, verse 1, my favorite scripture verse of all time, says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So what do you do with the grace of God? Repent, believe, and you walk in the grace that he's given you, which means you and I walk in obedience. Now, what, what happens if you don't do that perfectly? Who messed up? Who's messed up since they become a Christian? Who's messed up today? Right? Maybe not still early. Last night? <laughs> don't worry. It's still early. There's time. We mess up constantly. Which is why it matters so much that salvation's not yours. Sorry, I got real yelly right there. I didn't mean to. The point being, salvation belongs to God, which is how you are able and how He is able to sustain you through your garbage. Because it's not yours to begin with. He saved you, He is saving you, and He will save you. He justified you. In Christ, so that now God no longer sees your sinfulness. Instead, he sees Jesus. He is sanctifying you, molding you into Christ's image. And he will glorify you and perfect you. It is not a question. It is a certainty. He will finish what he started. All he's asked us to do is obey. And so what are we going to do with it? We're going to walk as those that are no longer under condemnation. Which means obey Him. And when you fall, repent and move on. When you mess up, ask for forgiveness and keep moving forward. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Some of y'all are like, what? (laughs) Finding Nemo. And so... We just keep moving towards Christ. We ask for forgiveness. We don't just ask for forgiveness willy-nilly like it doesn't matter that I just did the thing that I did. We truly repent and want to move away from it. Yes, that might be a slow, arduous process that never you never really get to see much growth. But I promise you, if you keep your eyes focused on Christ, by the time that you get to the end of the race, you will see what has happened. And you will know when God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. How in the world, just think about yourself. How in the world is God going to look at me and say, well done? (laughs) Right? I tell you how, because he's talking about Jesus. Because if he was to look at me, he'd say, "Eh, I give you 20%. But instead, he sees Jesus, when he looks 
at us. He sees the sacrifice of his son. When we stand before God, Jesus says, that one's mine. That one's mine. That one's mine. Believe it or not, that one's mine. <laughs> so what are, we, what, are we, what are we doing? Well, we're getting ready to sing. Guess what we're going to sing? It's about grace, so just take a guess. Guess what? It's amazing. And so we're going to sing a song about grace. This song has two purposes. One, if you need to spend some time at the altar, if you need to come and talk to Pastor Billy about salvation, that can happen. It doesn't have to happen here. It can happen in your seats. You don't have to wait till a special day to repent. You can repent in time and just come on. You don't have to come down here, but you can if you want to. If you need to pray, this altar will be open. If you're not going to move, that's okay. But what needs to happen in this time as we sing this song, we're going to prepare our hearts to take communion. Communion, what? It reminds us of the cross. It reminds us of the sacrifice where grace was on full display. If you're not a believer, then we ask you don't take. This does nothing for you. In fact, the Bible says it condemns you further if you take it improperly. It's just, it's just bread and juice, I think. I mean, I looked under there, so I don't know what's under there. I assume it's bread and grape juice. It's going to do nothing for you. It's not going to fill you up, right? If anything, it's going to make you hungrier. It's not going to do anything for you. For those of us that are saved, it's a reminder of what God did for you. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, even if you have not covenanted with us in membership, you are free to take communion. We, that's called open communion. We practice where if you are a believer, you can take it, even if this is not your church home. We pray that this will be your church home someday, unless you're just visiting and then go back to your church, whatever, we don't care. Point being, we practice communion. If you are a believer, this table's open to you. If you're not a believer, then just let the cup or let the, the tray pass. Nobody's going to judge you. If they do, make a note who it was, and we'll talk to them after, okay? But just let it pass. But during this song is where we prepare our hearts that we ask for forgiveness of the sin that plagues our life. And here's the thing about being saved. Since God's the one that saved you, you can ask for forgiveness and leave it there. Because the scripture tells us that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our sin. That God is the only person capable of forgiving and forgetting our sin. He does not hold it against us. So that when, as a believer, when you ask for forgiveness, he wipes it away. And it's gone. So don't hold on to the guilt and to shame. Do not let the devil trick you into thinking that you're not good enough because you never were good enough. You can acknowledge with him in that and say, but Christ is. What you got now, Satan? Because I got Jesus. And as we sing this song, for, ask for forgiveness so that you can take this in a manner that is pleasing to God, that it will remind you of the cross and the death on the cross for you. Not for everybody else in this room. Personally, for you, if you were the only one, Christ still would have died. And so this is personal. This isn't for everybody else. This is for you to remember that God has saved you. But first we repent. So this is what we're going to do as we sing. We repent. We ask God to not only remove the sin, but to take it out of the camp. He already did it on Jesus. We thank him for his forgiveness, and we move on. Resting in the grace that is found in Christ. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Most gracious God, you are good and great and mighty, and we praise you for your great name. 
God, we ask that as we move into this time of reflection and as we prepare our hearts for communion, that you will, in fact, forgive us of our sins, that you will remind us of the grace that we have in Christ. We love you, God, and we ask that you move mightily in our hearts, that as we take of the table, that we will be reminded of Christ. In whose name we pray.